Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 71. It's the first days of January 1984 when Operation Ascari has hit a few hiccups. Task Force Victor failed to take Kublai in the first battle for the town at the end of December, as you heard last episode, and Combat Team 1 in particular had been mauled. Both Combat Teams 1 and 2 retreated two kilometres northwest of the town, then turned and headed southwest, where they bivouacked around 17 kilometres away from Kublai, deciding what to do next. Some members of the task force began to talk about heading back to the border, and if their vehicles ran out of fuel, they openly spoke about abandoning them and walking to the cutline. At least one captain involved in this discussion decided to ignore his NCO's comments, according to veterans of the battle. The muddled manner in which the first attack in Kublai had been carried out was plain for all to see. Some later suggested the thick vegetation had created navigational challenges, which was true. But no officer in his right mind at this point would have accepted a renewed attack along the same route. Fapler was ready and waiting, and this would have been a silly tactic. Unfortunately, this muddling was going to continue through into the Battle for Kuvalai Part 2. After regrouping, SADF headquarters then radioed Task Force Victor Commander Piet Greiling and told him to turn his men around and renew the assault. He had other ideas. Many of the troops had been mentally battered, and some point-blank refused. The SADF was an organization that in some ways reflected the style of warfare conducted by the Boers during the Anglo-Boer War, where in order to press home a full frontal attack against the heavily armed enemy in an entrenched and well-defended position, they refused. It's better to live to fight another day, they said, like their ancestors. Just because the politicians were in a rush to show some kind of advantage over the Angolans, it didn't mean having to throw your life away. Hreling was in an invidious position. The intelligence he'd received concerning the first attack was substantially below par, to put it mildly. Reckies had not realized how many T-54-55 tanks had been sent to the border, and the South Africans had miscalculated when it came to attacking positions protected by the feared anti-aircraft guns. The enemy artillery also outranged the SADF, and the T-54-55s were a real eye-opener for troops fighting them for the first time. The analysis of the images captured by the SAF Force photo reconnaissance missions had also missed some important facilities. The drone had picked up that SAM-8 missiles were present, but totally missed something else. The SA-9 mobile unit Australia-1, known by NATO as the Gaskin. These could be deployed against ground attack aircraft, and the Australia-1's seeker system was unusual in that it used something called photocontrast. This was an advantage when it came to homing methods over the traditional heat-seeking missiles. The Strela-1 could engage an enemy plane approaching at low level, whereas the heat-seeking missiles could really only be successfully used chasing the afterburners or when fired from behind an attacking jet. The Strela-1 was a new weapon deployed by the Soviets in Angola, even though it had been around since the late 1960s. But it did have a few drawbacks. It could only engage targets against background conditions of either clear sky or solid overcast at least 20 degrees away from the sun, and at least 2 degrees above the horizon. So attacking impalas and mirages that approached targets out of the sun had real protection. If they knew where the SA-9s were, of course. The first SADF assault in Kuvalai had also created some head-scratching when it came to systems. Rattel commander said afterwards that the 20mm cannons had jammed and the specialized tools needed to unjam these weapons were not readily available. This is what is known as a span ratchet, or cocking ratchet, 
and they say there was only one for every four rifles. So by January 1st, 1984, Task Force Victor was languishing southwest of Kuvalai when Greiling received new orders to renew the assault on the 2nd of January. That did not go down well with the Omana campers, but the attack was duly prepped anyway. Early in the morning of the 2nd, some of the citizen force Omana refused to get out of their sleeping bags in protest. They were not cannon fodder, they said. Permanent force soldiers and the national servicemen, the youngsters, just called up, we're ready to go, but the part-timers or the campers were not. The source of this information comes from a manuscript of Combat Team 2 leader David Lotter from his book War Journal, and also quoted by former 3-2 comms officer Maria Skipas. Refusing to fight is regarded as treasonous behaviour and can lead to court-martialing and possible execution. Hreling, though, listened to his men, which the top brass regarded as a mistake. However, he had also made his own mistakes, including moving on Kuvulai during the first battle despite losing touch with the armoured cars, then not realising that his mortar section had overshot the rest of the mechanised units. But this wasn't his fault alone. There were lots of gaps in the SADF information about Kuvulai. All of this worsened by Pretoria's insistence on some kind of success, come what may. But the SADF needed a scapegoat, so General George Meiring relieved Hreling of his command and sent him home. Commandant F. van Lille was sent to replace Hreling, and Sector 10 Commander and Operation Ascari OC Brigadier Yup Yobe and General Meiring, who was Chief of South West African Territorial Forces then, both briefed van Lille before he flew in to join Task Force Victor. He was told how crucial it was to overrun Kuvulai and chase out the Fapla Brigade, or at least cut off the town's water and light, so that they would be forced to retreat. The new attack date was set for the next day, the 3rd of January. That meant the new commander of this task force had the grand total of one day to arrive, inspect the mechanised battalions, look at the plan, then issue orders. Even for the best officers in the world, this would have been an extremely tall order. But he did have some good news. Combat Team Delta was going to detach from 61 Mechanized Battalion and join Task Force Victor. He would then have more firepower at his disposal than Kreling, who was heading home. Still, he had a challenge remotivating the men of Task Force Victor. Earlier, Brigadier van Skulkweg had been asked to take over from Kreling, but he refused, and in what you could call a hospital pass, suggested van Lille be given the leadership role instead. Van Lille was eventually choppered into Task Force Victor, which had moved again to 30 kilometres south of Kuvalai, beyond the range of all Fapla's artillery, and he arrived late in the afternoon on the 1st of January. Meanwhile, 61 Mech's combat group Delta was bundubashing towards them and showed up the next day on the 2nd of January. It was decided to break up the new formations into three. Combat Team 1 was comprised of Alpha Company, mainly Citizen Force troops. Combat Team 2 was Bravo Company of Force Sai under the command of David Lotter, who had 20 Rattle 20s and 4 Rattles armed with 81mm mortars at his disposal, and then Combat Team 3, which was a squadron of Irland armoured cars from Moy River Regiment under Major Henny Kalmeyer, along with a medium artillery battery from Malopa Regiment and Regiments de la Rey and Groot Karu. They could all call on 8 sections of 81mm mortars, who are now back to the usual position in the rear. Plus, they could also use 71 battery of 140mm guns under Captain Ben Kutsia. On the other side, facing them, besides Fapla's artillery, there were a dozen T-54-55 tanks. Intelligence and proper information about Kuvalai still was sorely lacking. 
Later, some of the senior officers would duck and dive questions about Ascari, but let's start with specifics. Instead of months of careful preparation, Task Force Victor was going to be thrown into a full frontal attack on entrenched positions without any real strategic advantage. In this case, the defenders had at least 5 to 1 advantage, and they were definitely not going to be surprised. The SAD of top brass were using what can only be called a racist presumption that because Fapla was black and the SAD of his predominantly white, the Angolans would run away, but they didn't. Secondly, the intelligence information that was shown for Lil was a single blurred photograph from an RPV, the drone, which was about the size of a notepad, and a rough estimate that there was a brigade strength awaiting him in Kuvalai. That means at least 3,000, possibly 5,000. Thirdly, some of the mechanized commanders had no experience in specific vehicles. Lieutenant J.G. Scott told Marius Skippers later that he'd been surprised to find he was now going to assume command of at least four of these rattles because he was trained only to lead Irland 90s. The rattles were armed with 90mm guns firing armor-piercing rounds with a range of 1,200 meters and a 7.62mm machine gun with 200 round belts. Facing them were T-54-55s with its 100mm gun with a range of 2 kilometers and far thicker armor. However, the rattles were highly maneuverable in the bush, and in the coming clash, known as Kuvalai II, they would move quickly to set up secondary shots at the oncoming T-54-55s. The Russian tanks had another advantage besides armour and their gun, and that was they could shoot on the move. The rattles could not fire their 90mm while moving with any degree of accuracy, so most stopped, unless in a catastrophic situation. Then rattle commanders would watch their 90mm rounds bounce off the Russian tank up to six times before it was knocked out. Van Lille pondered all of this and the upcoming battle. He was going for a mix-and-match approach, with soldiers from the two different task forces, 61 mech and 82 mech, as well as the citizen force Omana, with Forsai infantry to make up for the previous poor morale. As he stared at the tiny photograph, all he could glean was that there was a lot of vegetation around the town and a road. It was paramount, thought Fundil, to create a diversion in this situation. He was relying once more on the SADF's capacity to move fast and react quicker, so his initial plan was for 61 mech to move towards Kupalai from the southeast, close to or along the main road. This would then draw fire, and 82 mech would attack from further east. But the citizen force contingent, 82 mech units, which had been under Commandant Khrelin, balked. They didn't want to be the main force, and told Van Lille they were not happy about the idea. Some mentioned the phrase cannon fodder again, and others used phrases like certain death. Van Lille basically was forced to swap the two forces. 82 would now be the diversion, and 61 would bear the brunt of the assault. The citizen force soldiers agreed, finally, to Van Lille's altered plan, and things were set to roll. It was before dawn on the 3rd of January 1984 that the Battle of Kuvalai II began. The SA Air Force had been busy through the last days of December bombing the town. Canberra's had dropped 60 120 kg and 18 250 kg bombs, two 450 kg and 600 alpha bombs. Impalas had followed that up with 32 250 kg bombs, and all, they said, had hit their targets. By now, Kuvalai was not your average Angolan town. The bunkers and trenches were far deeper and by all accounts, the bombing failed to damage any infrastructure in and around the town. 
The SA Air Force declared later it was the most successful raid they'd conducted through the border war, but the detail of exactly what they hit was rather porous. So, before first light on the 3rd, the combat teams formed up and began moving in the direction of Kuvalai. Then, to add to the confusion, torrential rain began to fall, and the thick cloud cover meant there'd be no air support for most of the initial phase of the attack. Delay after delay set in, the vehicles failed to make their assigned jump-off points, and the time for the final assault was pushed back to 1,400 hours. Then the mud and poor visibility meant more delays, and as the tension rose, communication between two of the commanders broke down. Van Lille was arguing with Major Chris Dutoy, who was leading the armoured vehicles, and who began to warn that there was not enough daylight for an attack. Van Lille told him curtly that he was no longer prepared to reason with the Major, and the strike force continued to advance in a northwesterly direction, with Van Lille hoping he could come across the main road north into the town, which was so blurred on his photo recon map he couldn't see it properly. The assault, though, was going to be carried out by the infantry on foot, with anti-tank squadrons in support when they got close enough. 61 mech or X-ray was on the right. Van Lille was travelling blindly, and it was almost impossible to maintain the momentum in the muddy and thick bush. Waiting for the South Africans was a Fapla brigade arranged across an area at least 7 kilometres in diameter around the town, so it was going to be sooner rather than later that his men hit the first defences. While they groped their way along, Van Lille was staring at his compass, and then things began to unravel. Part of the plan was for the diversionary O-minor force to begin taking fire from a distance, which would then help the main force locate the enemy. And yet, here they were, close to the town, no sign of this diversionary shooting. Instead, it was the main force that suddenly came under fire from shoulder-launched RPG-7s and AK-47s. The time was now 1600 hours, the summer sun starting to slant into the west. Dutoy, who was travelling alongside Van Lille, radioed to suggest once more that they should rethink the attack. They were not in control of the situation. By now, the South Africans had arrived at the first line of anti-tank positions, which was an open area cleared of all vegetation, except for the stumps of large trees. Remember that Fapla had used this kind of rattle trap previously. Van Lille now grew wary. He knew these stumps could rip out the hydraulic pipes from under the rattles. This was a dangerously late moment to try and force home an attack. Dutoy was right after all, and as Van Lille vacillated, Fapla was going to make up his mind for him. There was a second combat team under Lotte, which was on the move 500 metres behind Van Lille's main force, and by now, both teams were taking hits from Fapla. An Irland 90 had reportedly triggered a mine and had come to a grinding halt, radioing for a technical service corps or Tiffies to move in to help. After many minutes driving back and forth in the thick bush, the Tiffies finally found the Irland and towed it to safety. The gunner continued to fire at the enemy positions as he was towed away. The enemy continued firing back at him, which angered the Tiffies. They said the Irland's gunner had drawn fire and they would be hard-pressed to go in to save another airlant, should this happen again. Then Rattle 71 Bravo detonated a landmine and ended up marooned in the middle of a minefield. The driver tried to drive out but then hit a second mine, and the armoured vehicle shuddered to a halt. The ammunition aboard began exploding as the five soldiers leapt out, saving themselves at the last minute. Fapla continued firing into the damaged rattle, and by 1700 hours, Fanil finally realised that continuing this attack was futile. He had also discovered his so-called diversionary force, the mixed group including the Omana, 
had not followed his orders. Instead of heading into the town alongside the main group, Task Force Victor had hung back and now they were actually behind Van Lille. No wonder they had failed in their mission to draw enemy fire. Angrily, he ordered Victor to leave the area immediately and form a lager for the night. It was still rainy and overcast, and with dusk approaching, the light was bad. Brigadier Joubert back at HQ agreed and told Van Lille to complete his withdrawal, and the South Africans drove five kilometres southeast of Kuvalai and formed a lager for the night. Tomorrow was another day, said Joubert. Meanwhile, the remnants of Ratel 71 Bravo were left behind in the minefield, and the South Africans were worried that Fapler would seize it. They needn't have worried. Fapler's T-54-55 tanks hit it repeatedly until it was a twisted hulk. Ironically, the South Africans were firing on the Ratel at the same time with the aim of leaving it completely destroyed, unusable and useless. Both sets of gunners from both sides were, for once, trying to achieve the same outcome, and both succeeded. The only thing left the next day was parts of the undercarriage. The SADF troops and both combat teams were exhausted, and yet most only managed an hour or two off sleep that night before they were woken up at 0400 on the morning of the 4th of January. This was day two of the battle, and during the night Van Lille and de Toy fortunately had patched up their differences. De Toy would lead the rifles engaging the T-5455s, while Delta Company, headed by Johan Dubasson, would hit enemy infantry targets. Once Delta had crossed the minefield, the idea was for Alpha Company under Van Lille, along with Combat Team 2, led by Lotte, to follow. The remains of the rifle in the minefield was causing some problems, with Brigadier Joubert back at Oshikati fixating on recovering what was left of the thing, which was rather silly, considering the number of hits it had taken. So by 0430 they were moving, and at 0600, as the light improved, they approached the flattened rifle. By now four rifles, 71 Charlie, Alpha, 71 and 71 Bravo, were strung out in an extended line. Behind them was the second line of 13 rifles, commanded by Lieutenant Alex McCaskill. Waiting ahead was Fopler's 11th Brigade, and as the SADF units moved forward, the enemy opened fire with anti-aircraft weapons. It was now 0800. The SADF artillery had begun an extremely heavy bombardment, while the SAF force also managed to fly in a few sorties. The rain was lifting just in time. The South African 120mm mortar teams provided harassing or quail feud on the west side of the Kuvalai River. This was going to be some day. The artillery was going to fire off 60 tons of ordnance in a couple of hours, the recoil driving the wheels so deep into the muddy ground that they had to be dug out after the battle. At 0845, the bulk of the task force under Dutoy reached the clearing where the rifle had been left, burnt out and destroyed. There wasn't enough to move it, said Dutoy, despite Joubert's orders. It was then that Fapla resistance stiffened and the task force began to try and negotiate the minefield and tree stumps. A few of Fapla's 23mm anti-aircraft guns had been set up in a killing zone aimed at one of the Shonas and the tanks were also firing across open ground. Then, as with the earlier Battle of Kuvalai, the Angolans counter-attacked as the South Africans' attacks slowed. This was the second time in a matter of days that the South Africans had faced this unexpected action and the main target was Task Force Victor, not X-Ray. Combat Team 3 had just emerged from the south into one of these open shawners when a T-54-55 opened fire. The Irland 90s of the regiment Moy River faced off against these significant opponents about one kilometre west of the task force. 
For some reason, Comet Team 3 had actually drifted off course by over 900 meters, but the Alouette gunships were operating and helped redirect the Moy River islands. One of the armored cars was then hit a glancing blow by a T-54-55 round, shaving its open hatch, and the Elans withdrew once more. Better safe than sorry. The T-54 was out of range of the Irland guns. Fapla was fighting tooth and nail for this town, but the South Africans were refusing to back down. To the northwest, another group of 12 SADF rifles came under heavy fire. Two men inside the command rifle were wounded by shrapnel, including its OC Burger. In the intense gun battle, the rifles then managed to take out one of the T-54-55s. But the manner in which Fapla was fighting had surprised the South Africans. They were moving their tanks around the battlefield using conventional tactics, and the entire exercise resembled Second World War fighting, tank against armoured car, with the troops seeking shelter alongside. This non-conventional war had turned very conventional. The fight was just starting, and would last until the following day, with Fapla bottled up in Kuvalai. As I'll explain next episode. 3-2 Battalion had pulled off a bloodless takeover of Tetchamuteti, which meant Fapla's 11th Brigade was now trapped in Kuvalai, and hundreds were going to die in their trenches. But they were going to leave two dozen South Africans dead before this battle was over. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. It makes the series more visible. Or you can head off to abwarpodcast.com and email me from there, or direct message me on Twitter, at Des Latham. Until next, Fosbet. Thank you.